this is Stephanie Fowler. And this is Tony Russo. And you're tuning in for another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast and video chat with writers and authors where we talk about their books, their work, their creative process, and whatever else happens to come up in conversation. Today, our guest is Chris Lindsley, a local writer and author of Land of Fun, the story of an old-fashioned amusement park for the ages. It's a memoir slash history book about fun land in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. So welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you very much, Stephanie. I'm glad to have you here. You know, it's funny, as I was kind of preparing for the podcast today, um, I saw on, I think it was in the newspaper, that there was kind of a viral TikTok recently um, about Land of Fun, about the the uh, Viking ship. Um, someone had taken a video of the Viking ship and it being, I guess, close to where they rented. And then they quoted you in the article. And I was like, oh, well, this is kind of timely because we're going to be chatting with him this week. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, one of the great things about being associated with Funland and with the book is I'm considered a Funland expert. And I've, all, and I've obviously made a bunch of media contacts because I self-published the book. So, um, you know, pretty much all of the media placements um, were ones that I um, got from, you know, working and reaching out to people. So the person at Delaware Online who wrote that story has reached out to me four or five times for stories over the past two years. And he said, hey, I saw this on TikTok that 1.6 million people have watched this video of someone who clearly didn't know the backstory, but said, man, this ride is coming awful close to this house, right? And it's within a couple feet. But um, what the, the person did not know is that uh, the Funland families live in many of the houses around the park. So that house has been owned by, um, again, one of the families that runs the park um, going back to the 60s or 70s. So they, you know, it's interesting. There's a fourth generation family member who grew up in that room every summer and had that ride as part of his uh, goodbye or a good night routine. I would um, think so. Yeah, for yes, sure. I mean, because that, yes. that, that ride is pretty close to that room. I watched the TikTok and was like, <laughs> I guess if you just Airbnb it and showed up, I guess that would be kind of a surprise to see that out the window, to see that huge Viking ship just, I mean, just right there. So it's pretty close. Yeah. No, it, it's, it, uh, it kind of shows the power of Funland, though, that, that it got so many views and there was so much interest and that this reporter wanted to write it and uh, all of that. So, uh, yeah, no, it's a, it's a cool story. Yeah, I mean, 1.6 million views. That's, I mean, I think we can call that viral. <laughs> yeah, I think so, too. I think so. So tell us a little bit about uh, your connection to Funland. Like, you know, why write this book? Um, you know, why become the Funland expert? Sure. Um, I worked at Funland for six summers in high school and college, so 1980 to 1985. Um, so 16 to 22. Um, and got to know the family, the Fosnock family that owns Funland and has since 1962 very well. Um, and so part of the time I was there, I was at Penn State. Uh, I ended up majoring in journalism. So I've been a writer communicator for the last 35 years. And writing a book has been one of those things that's on my and many people's bucket lists, I think. So um, as my daughter, I have two, two children. My daughter's the youngest. As she was getting ready to head to college, I thought, if I'm ever going to do this, I've got time now. And so that summer I was thinking about, well, what might I like to write on? And I said, you know, I'm sort of amazed that no one's written a book on Funland. I obviously know Funland. I have a great connection with the family that owns it. I thought they would give me kind of the access that I wanted. And I thought 
I'm going to do this. So I went to uh, Al Fosnacht, who's the patriarch of the family, who's now 92. I went to him, you know, at that point, uh, three summers ago and said, hey, I'd love to do this. Um, are you OK with that? And my guess is he said yes. Are we frozen? I think Chris froze for a minute. I'm going <laughs> to give him a second just to see if. Uh, I mean, because I, I, I was I was there. Uh, we'll give One him of the we'll things that that I'd like to talk about until he comes back is coming that close to the house is part of the thrill of it. You know, like yeah. when it's people, it's an advertisement in itself. It's like, well, this looks like it could be dangerous, even though it's clearly not because it's, you know, their own house that they're endangering. Yeah. I mean, if did you, I don't know, you probably didn't see the TikTok. I'll have to send it to you, but basically the people, the, the kind of the comment was something of the, the kind of the, the caption was like, they didn't say like, it said it was close to the boardwalk, you know? And then there's like, this house and then there's like you know you just see like right next to it um oh i think we lost him for sure oh no oh no i'll give him a minute to pop back in um because i was getting ready to text him a note and tell him that i think we he froze but we'll give him and a second now as as someone who's been in are, did you publish this book no no he published this one um i have it right here um let's see Let's see if I can. So I have the book. Uh, it's right here. Oh, um, wow. We'll give him a second to see if he can if he can jump back in. Um, he's he's not pending yet. Um, let's see. It just uh, looks like he just um, it looks like he self publishes uh, on his own. Um, it doesn't look like a Kindle KDP, but um, it's interesting, you know, because when I saw that he had written this book, I was like, well, where's the book on trimpers? You know, but <laughs> maybe, maybe there is one already, and I just I'm just not aware of the the trimpers counterpart. Well, it's it's something that Arcadia would do. That's why I was I was wondering. Ah, that you know, makes sense. There's an Arcadia, you know, a lost ocean city or old ocean city or whatever. Right. Um. So you know the idea that <laughs> the idea that that the the idea that you know the each book each place would have its own book if there was you know a way to sure. kind of get that done. Uh, but there'd have to be somebody who is, you know, who is interested enough in kind of doing the the work that it would take to do, you know, all the all the historical stuff. And I, you know, having an inside track on the first uh, on Trimpers, not on Trimpers, but on Playland is something that is, <clears throat> I guess, helps when you're trying to, you know, get the book written because like you you have a motivation to do it in a way that like, like, yeah, I know that if I wrote a book about trimpers, I probably could sell a bunch of them, but that would mean I have to write a book about trimpers and I don't have, you know, I don't have the interest and it's a rare thing for, for someone to have the interest and the access to mm -hmm. something like that. And so yeah, that inside track ha helps. I mean, I think that was one of the things that helped, you know, me with my book was having that connection to Alice and, and, you know, um, you know, I think it's in, in knowing some of the other students, knowing some of the other teachers, um, right. knowing her family. So I think, you know, having that inside ability to jump in, I think is always helpful when we're, when we're writing. I really hope Chris, Chris jumps back on. I feel bad that we lost him. Oh, wait, I think he's coming in. All right, let's try this again. Let's see. Here we go. Did he freeze again? I'm trying. Oh, my gosh. 
We've got him in. Hi, Chris. Can you, can, Chris, can you hear us? And it looks like maybe it's frozen again. Well, that's unfortunate. He, yeah. Um, probably be better off if he plugged it into his, uh, I don't know if you can hear us, Chris, or if you're watching on Facebook, but if you plug your computer into your router, that will work better. Um, yeah. Oh my gosh. Wi-Fi can get knocked silly, you know, and you know, where, where Chris has success is that, you know, he's already a writer, which makes it easier. You know, I mean, you know, we talk about this all the time, like, oh, I think I'll write a book. Well, you go right ahead. <laughs> you go right ahead and keep thinking about writing a book. But, you know, if you don't have if you don't have the will to to make it happen, then that's all you're going to be able to do is think about it. So having experience in journalism certainly doesn't hurt. Yeah, I'm uh, with you. Yeah. Um. So maybe what we do is this. Maybe we should end the broadcast. Okay. Um, and maybe, um, maybe I can try to set this up maybe for another day. I know you're getting, I guess we don't really have to say all this on broadcast. <laughs> Wait, let me, let me try one more time. He's, he's here again. Let me, that's let me okay. No, I, I am getting, I'm getting ready for my big tour. I'll be in Billings, Montana on July 6th. If anybody's out there in Billings and wants to come see us. Hello. Hey, welcome back. Hey, Chris. Hey, how are you? Good, good. So we, we hung out hoping that you would uh, be able to come back to yeah. us. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, no problem, no problem. Uh, so I, I think maybe we'll go back to the part where, um, you know, um, how did you come to Funland <laughs> and, you know, deciding to write this book sure. and, you know, why become the expert on Funland? Gotcha. Um, yeah, I, uh, you know, I worked at Funland for uh, six summers in high school and college, uh, 1980 to 85. Uh, absolutely loved it and uh, got to know the family that owns it, the Fosnack family, very well and uh, stayed in touch over the years. Uh, we vacationed in the Rehoboth area every summer since I was four. Uh, so going back a, a lot of years. Um, and, uh, you know, as I got older, um, you know, I ended up uh, majoring in journalism from Penn State and uh, spent has spent the last 35 years in communications. I always thought writing a book was something I'd be interested in and uh, just really was thinking about what would I write about. And as my youngest child was getting ready to head off to college uh, four summers ago, um, I thought, you know, why not Funland, right? I know Funland well, I have a connection with the family um, and I think they have a great story to tell. So I approached the patriarch of the family, Al Fosnacht, who is now 92 and said, hey, this is what I'd like to do and this is what it would entail. What do you think? And he said, I'm not really all that interested in publicity. We've never really needed publicity. He said, but if it's important to you, I'm in. And oh, so at that, at, the, at that point, I knew we were good. And uh, the family could not have been more helpful. And, uh, you know, I spent the next year and a half figuring out how to write a book. Yeah, I guess he's he's right. You know, if you've got roller coasters and haunted houses, I guess you don't need to publicize too much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're literally the only amusement park in the state of Delaware. So, which, oh. which is something many people don't know. So, oh, uh, yeah. yeah. And in Rehoboth, if you've ever been to the boardwalk, there's not a ton for younger people to do. There's stuff outside on Route 1, but, you know, there's really not a lot <laughs> going on. So almost every family I've found that has kids between 2 and 22 is very familiar with Funland. Yeah, because it's, it's kind of a, an area staple. Very much so. Oh, I think I think city city leaders would tell you it's one of three or four sort of core businesses, and Rehoboth would be much different 
without Funland and without the values that the Fasnacht family brings in terms of low prices and really stressing family fun without breaking the bank. You, um, when, when, when you were, we were talking about you behind your back while you had <laughs> fallen off. Uh, one of the things that, you know, Stephanie brought up is that there aren't, you know, there, for instance, there isn't a Trimper's book she had said, and it, it does take kind of a, kind of a perfect storm for, because lots of people are like, Hey, yeah, I'd like to write a book about when I went to the beach when I was a kid, but to actually, you know, you're fortunate that you also had the the writing background to get it done instead of just saying, Hey, I should write a book someday. Um, can you talk about like some of the, some of the other things that you've done um, before, you know, for, for kind of, kind of your writing career that, that brought you here, that gave you the confidence to say, yeah, I can sustain a book length story. Sure. I'll, I'll try to uh, be fairly brief, but again, I, I was at Penn state. I was sports editor, of the student paper, the daily collegian, which at the time I was there was considered to be the best newspaper in the country. So I got to cover the football team. You know, people know Joe Paterno and we had two national titles and I got a lot of national experience and got to meet a lot of national writers that way, which was an incredible experience um, in college. And uh, I stayed in sports communications for about 15 years. So worked for a variety of different companies um, doing a variety of different things. And then I, for the last 25 years or so, I've been in healthcare um, doing writing, but I've also done freelance work. I've written three or four stories for the Washington Post. I've, um, you know, I've done a variety of things for a variety of people. So in talking to people about book publishing and stuff, I learned very quickly that I wasn't going to get it published traditionally because they felt like it was too much of a niche book and had a very limited audience. Yeah. But um, so I then quickly looked at self-publishing and how I could do that. And, uh, um, you know, so I I felt like I could write the book, uh, you know, and I felt like it would be of interest to people. And I felt like it would sell because Funland has like 300,000 people come through their doors every non-COVID year. Yeah. You know, and many of them have been coming for 40 or 50 years. So, you know, to those people and in talking locally to the bookstore in town browse about, which is a great bookstore, they said anything with Funland sells. They said, as long as your book cover isn't awful and the copy, you know, isn't run on sentence have to run on sentence, right. we're going to, we're happy to sell it. And so, uh, you know, we developed a good partnership there, but that, you know, I think I have a lot of experience not in book writing per se, but in writing. And uh, um, again, I felt like I knew the subject matter well enough and knew, again, what to choose for chapters that would people would be interested in. Again, most of it's on the memory, the historic stuff, uh, but also some life lessons and values from the Fosnock family that, again, I've been fortunate enough to learn from over the last 40 years. When you... Um, decided to self-publish because I decided to self-publish my most recent book. And then I decided to definitely not self-publish my most recent book <laughs> um, because it was, it was more work than I felt I was capable of. Um, how, how difficult was it for you to kind of find your way around that? The, the whole self-publishing world. Sure. I, I started with, you know, I, well, first off I went to a day long a workshop uh, on a guy who self-published like 15 books, which was great because he gave us a PowerPoint presentation. He had already done basically the research of 10 or 15 self-publishing companies and what he thought about them. 
and I, and he was nice that I could contact him afterward. And so we talked about some. So anyway, long story short, I went with one, got about two thirds the way through the process and realized I hate this. This is horrible. I don't have any control. They control the fonts. They control everything, right? The printing. And I thought I work at a, you know, I'm a, uh, my day job is um, at the University of Maryland Medical System. I'm in internal communication. So we work with printers all the time. So I talked to a printer one day when he was in, I said, this is what I'm doing. I want to write a book, but I have very little control. And the self-published, the self-published I'm working with never gets back to me. I had to make an appointment every time I had a question. I'm like, this is, you know, and literally 30 days in a row. I mean, I had tons of questions and I'm like, I cannot do this anymore. And he goes, I can publish it for you. And he goes, I can give you, I can give you a blank template that you can have someone design and we can do whatever the heck you want. I said, that's awesome. So I ended up working with him. I've worked with a lot of designers over the years. So I um, hired one of them on a freelance basis to design the book. Um, and I had total control over everything, which I never would have had through the self-publisher. It ended up being much cheaper. It ended up being much quicker, you know. And so I'm like, how am I not liking this totally? So I kind of walked into it. Um, Tony has an answer to your question. And once I had full control, I was so frustrated. But at that point, everything was great. And my designer added a bunch of touches that I could have never incorporated into self-publishing. Again, I was very limited fonts and all of that. And, uh, you know, I, I just paid the printer directly for printing. So, you know, it was all out of pocket for me. Then the question was, how many do you print? What's the cost? What's the cover price? You know, a whole bunch right. of things there that, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with that go into any of those decisions. And, uh, you know, I talked to some people and got some help there, but ultimately had to make some decisions. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, I would recommend the route I went to to anyone who is looking at that, because to me, the self-publishing, the traditional self-publishing experience was a nightmare. Well, and just to just to get just to get it clear. So you went through like an online company that does it because that's. Like, no, no, I went to a printer that I, I work with for work. Oh, no, I'm sorry. The one that you were dissatisfied with. That was. Oh, just yes. Like an online um, soup to nuts kind of package. Yes. Yes, it company. was. Oh, yep. Right. yep. So, uh, yeah. yeah I are... think that's the important part, you know, in going through the publishing process, whether you're going with a traditional publisher, whether it's hybrid, whether it's self-publishing, whether it's, you know, almost like self-self-publishing, you know, what you did with, you know, finding your own printer and that sort of thing. I think the, the most essential thing, I think, is that writers find a good fit you know, and what works best for them and what, you know, feels right for them and what feels best for the project. And I think that, you know, you were very lucky to, you know, find, find the right fit for you because not every writer does. And then some people get left with, you know, you know, having a wonderful story and then end up, you know, on the publishing side, not having a great experience. And sometimes that can sour things a bit. So. Yeah, no, it, it worked out. And and I mean, I was comfortable with printers and designers, which some people aren't. You know, I've had a few people who have asked me and I've given them my method. Some have used it, but many have gotten into it a little bit and said, I don't want to deal with all this stuff. I want people to help, which is why those companies are there. And for them, this could be very helpful. But I, yeah, I was very yeah, grateful think- once yeah, and I think the proof is in the pudding. I mean, I think the book looks very good. It feels very good in the hand. I think the layout in the inside is very, 
very reader friendly. Um, you know, so I think you did a bang out job and then, you know, you've sold like what over 3000 copies of it. So I feel like, you know, it's very clear the decisions that, you know, you put into it were, were definitely a good payoff. Um, so I think that that worked out well. One of the questions I, I did have for you and, and I feel like this happens for a lot of, um, nonfiction writers. I'm a nonfiction writer myself is, the amount of research that goes into a book like Funland or the work that Tony just did or the work that I just did, because Tony and I are both nonfiction writers ourselves. Um, you know, the amount of research, um, you know, sometimes feels like you spend, you know, 80% of your time doing research and 20% of the time, you know, writing. Um, and it just seemed like when I was looking at your book, you know, I'm sure you had interviews. I'm sure. Did you go to like archives? I mean, it just seemed like there was a lot of very specific, you know, details that you were going after. Um, could you talk a little bit about your your process? Sure. Uh, I started with the family. There's about 30 members of the family um, who work at the park, plus eight or 10 kids who are going to be working at the park soon. So, and many of them, again, I worked with certainly the second generation, the third generation. I knew them very well because I'd worked with them and right. stayed in touch. So I interviewed pretty much all of them, right? You know, I had different things I knew I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about um, the four generations of the family business, which only 3% of family businesses get to that point. I wanted to talk about kind of the, the theory of the park of they have five rides that have been there since 1962 that are still in operation. So how do you do that? Right. So I did a lot of research on the rides. And so basically it seemed like every interview led me to someone else. Cause I would always ask at the end, who else should I talk to? Right. I did a chapter about Al, the patriarch who has a kind of an amazing life story. Right. So he gave me some of those names, but then as I would talk to someone, they would say, Hey, you should really talk to, Tom and Steve, and they would give me contact information, right? So, yeah. you know, when, once I had all of that kind of mapped out, then, you know, I would just continue to talk to people. Al and the family were great. If I said, hey, I want to talk to a few people in the amusement park industry who you work with, they would give me names. Um, you know, I knew I wanted to talk to a few people in Rehoboth. So I talked to two former mayors of Rehoboth who had been there for a while, who could share their insights into, you know, how Funland and the Fosnox are in terms of um, a merchant and just a kind of a community partner. And they shared a lot of things. And so it's like every story led to another, but I ended up interviewing about 120 people uh, for the book. I didn't use them all, but I transcribed everything. Right. And I, I've got yeah. a three ring notebook in my house. That's pretty big. That has all of those quotes. And I did it all. I didn't use the service. I did it all myself. And, you know, um, so a lot of hours, but, you know, I, I was very passionate about the project. So I, I loved getting home from work and saying, okay, what am I doing for the next five hours? And pretty much every night for, you know, more than a year, that's what I did. Do you have oh, yeah. a favorite story that, you know, either that you did, did get to tell or that you chose not to tell because it didn't fit. Um, but is there something that kind of sticks out when you're like, Oh, you know what? This is a cool story. Nobody knows about. Yeah. Um, let me give you a couple very quickly. Um, you know, people always talk about what's life like living there, right? Because what, what the Fosnox did that no other business that I'm aware of did was they housed us. They fed us, right? We lived above the park. Um, they had a house mother, basically, who cooked us dinner every night, did our laundry. Um, you know, so they, they really took care of us. But, I mean, we were basically 26 kids between 16 and 25 who were on our own. 
you know, all summer. I mean, we had a curfew and other things, but, you know, there were all kinds of pranks. So people wanted to know about those, right? So probably the, the story that's gotten the most traction was at some point, one of the guys put on, um, used some modeling clay creatively onto one of the merry-go-round horses and turned a mare into a stallion. Right. And it was there for three weeks before the family, a family member saw it and took it off. Right. But we all knew it and we thought it was the funniest thing ever. You know, so, you know, there's stories like that, I think, that um, really resonate with people. Um, you know, but there's other things, too, that um, sort of go beyond the park. But in terms of the first day that I started working there, Al said, you know, you're not working for you're not working with us, you're working for, or, or sorry, you're not working for us, you're working with us, right? And I didn't really know what that meant, but they really went out of their way to make us feel like family. And I didn't know that that was kind of a lifetime thing. But for example, Al came to my wedding, Al came to my father's memorial service six years ago when he passed away. And he's done that for thousands of people, right? So there's, you know, there's those kind of, of stories as well. I mean, another one is that, um, you know, uh, obviously cleaning up throw up is not the most favorite part. In fact, it's probably the least favorite part of every amusement um, person's ride. So no one wanted to do it. So, you know, if you waited at all to clean it up, Al or someone from the family would run out and clean it up right away. Right. So you would right. see him out there. It's like, what's this 80 year old guy doing out cleaning, cleaning up throw up? Right. He wanted to lead by example. So he would. You know, he would constantly do that. Another one is that um, in at the time when I started, we lived up above the park, but our shower was an outdoor shower on the outskirts of the park. So literally you would go, you would take your shower, you would have your towel on, and you would have to walk through the entire park to go up the stairs to where you lived. Well, what I didn't learn until it was too late my first year was the guys loved to come and try to take your towel off while you were walking. So, of course, during my first summer, someone swiped my towel and I had to <laughs> run naked up to the up to the thing. So needless to say, that didn't happen again. But, um, you know, it shocked a few of the uh, funneling customers for sure. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, there was really sort of a, a, you know, not to be too precious about it, but, you know, a real family sort of vibe from, you know, Al, you know, to the staff. And then that seems to have even extended into, you know, the, you know, the customers who are coming back year after year and decade and, you know, and then getting to a point where they're bringing their own kids back. Um, so it seems like, you know, um, you know, the sense of nostalgia, you know, even keeping his prices like super low, um, it almost seems like that seems to be a real sort of bedrock um, for, for Funland and for the family. Yeah, virtually from the beginning, Al's, Al's motto was today's fun at yesterday's prices, right? And so literally for the first 25 years, they did not raise ticket prices, 10 cents a ticket or 12 for a dollar. So think about it in 62, that's one thing. But then in 1986, the cost, basically a dime was worth 31 cents at that point, right? So, um, you know, they were giving an incredible bargain, but that was kind of what he was all about and really what... Al has wanted to do. I mean, his goal is if you're on vacation in Rehoboth for a week, he wants you to feel like you can come to Funland every night, have fun, have a great time and not spend that much money. And I think a lot of families did that. And, you know, I, I one of the most meaningful things to me about the book was after the book was published that first summer, we had three book events at Funland. 
um, which were basically Al signing books. And I was, I was very much the, uh, the appetizer there as I should have been. Um, he was the main course and, you know, I'll never forget that just in terms of he would talk to everyone for a minute or two and he would write a long, he wouldn't just sign his name, but he would write a message to them. I mean, he was so incredibly grateful for them, but everybody came with a story, right? They said, Al, we've been coming for 50 years. We've had four generations of our family ride that ride. This is, you know, this is our memory place. And just to hear that dialogue between the two of them and to see people waiting in line for up to 90 minutes without their cell phones, without complaining, knowing they were going to get their two minutes with Al and they were happy with that, right? This was like, a, you know, I, I can't describe how meaningful that was to me to see that connection, um, you know, because people were so grateful and they really wanted to say thanks. And they realized that they waited in line, they were going to get a chance to talk to the owner. And, you know, that totally made their day as it made his. I think that's fantastic because, you know, as writers, we, you know, we sign our books, right? But you were basically like, nah, it's this guy, you know, he's the boss. He's made this whole thing happen. And like Al was signing your book. I think that's, I've never heard of that before, but I'm, I'm really sort of taken with that idea of, you know, giving somebody that moment, you know, I think that's, I think that's really amazing. Well, he loved doing it. And again, he just loved the interaction, right? He, I mean, he was happy that we were selling books, but again, they cut me a very good deal. They have a, they have a Funland store in their park and an online store. So I've sold about half my books through that and half through Browseabout. And, you know, again, they gave me a, a, a sweetheart of a deal because he wasn't concerned about making money for them. He wanted to help me out. He was he was always concerned about how much did you spend printing? And, you know, I want to help out with that. And I said, no, 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 we've got a great deal. You know, I'm good. But, you know, his focus is on helping people. And it has been his entire life. And as I said, there's a chapter in the book that talks about him and some of what he's done. You know, he's taught Sunday school for 60 years. He's done what they call prison ministry for about 40 years, where he goes and visits lifers in prison just to give them someone to talk to, because in most cases, their families have disowned them, you know, and he he just does all of these things that I didn't even know until I started writing the book. And he didn't tell me, but his kids would tell me. They said, did dad ever tell you that he did this? I said, no. And they'd fill me in. And then I'd ask him once I knew about it, he'd talk about it, but he would never share that stuff with me just on his own. Right. So you know, just, just a, a great guy. And, uh, you know, again, I was so happy I could get him a book, you know, given that he was in his nineties, you know, while he was still living and could really enjoy it because he's very into history. And, uh, you know, I think he's enjoyed having the book and he sent, you know, a huge number of books to friends and other people. And when kids write in letters to Funland, you know, he'll send them a book and, you know, it's just been, it's just been great seeing that. And um, how do how can people get the book from you? Your social stuff. Do people find you on the internet? Can they order the book on the internet? Yeah, they can. Uh, what I suggest is going to my book website, which is land-of-fun.com, um, and right on the homepage you can buy the book. It'll take you to Funland's online site, um, and that's you know that's by far the best way. You can also learn a lot about the book there. I have testimonials. I have all of my media coverage there. Um, you know, all of those kind of things. Uh, so that's uh, that's probably the best place. But um, it's also being carried by Browseabout and uh, the Bethany Bookstore has it also. Very well. All right, Stephanie. Well, now this is the part of the show where you thank the guest. 
Well, Chris, thank you so much for being on the podcast and, and talking to us about Land of Fun. This has been fantastic. Well, I really appreciate being on and uh, thanks again for having me. Absolutely. So What's Your Story was produced by Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Visit them at www.saltwatermedia.com. You can find the podcast page at so what's your story podcast.com where we have links to the author's work and short bios and lots of other fun stuff. You can also reach us via email and social there. Tell your story.